What do you do when God calls you to a place that you feel is pretty dangerous? We're going to talk about that next on the Monday Christian Podcast. Listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program dedicated to helping you put into action the truth of God's Word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. And now, here's your host, Ezra Beyer. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the Monday Christian Podcast. We're up to episode number 11 now. And I've really enjoyed these conversations. They've just been, uh, I, I feel kind of selfish. I just enjoy talking to people and hearing their stories. And I hope you have as well. And if you haven't already, maybe you've just subscribed on iTunes or Google Play and you haven't checked out our new website, themondaychristian.com. If that's the case, uh, check it out. We've got some, uh, lots of blog articles, uh, more podcast ep- episodes there, of course. And also, uh, if you haven't already, subscribe to our email list. You can just do that on the homepage, themondaychristian.com. Click subscribe at the top, enter your email, and you'll make sure that you won't ever miss a podcast episode or um, you won't miss one of our blog post articles as well that myself and others write as well. Today, though, on the podcast, I'm so excited to have my friends Melvin and Sandy Adams, and it was several months ago that I interviewed them, got to hear more of their story about their time as missionaries in the Ukraine. It's a powerful story. And they share, and Melvin specifically shares, how he actually came uh, very close to losing his life while they were over in the Ukraine. It's a fascinating story, really a challenging story. So if, if you're in a place right now where you're feeling like, God, like where, why am I in this place? And maybe you feel in a place where it's a little bit dangerous. You're a little bit out on the limb and you're wondering, okay, God, do you really have us in the right spot? Uh, If that's the case, then what Melvin and Sandy share might just be for you today. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and jump right into the podcast. All right, today on the podcast, it's so good to have my friends Melvin and Sandy Adams on. And Melvin, Sandy, thanks so much for coming on. Great to be with you today. And let's see here. I always start out, start off the same way, asking people how long we've known each other. And uh, man, we go back. I guess it'd be about uh, probably f- at least getting to know each other uh, personally. Probably five, six years now. Yes. Yep, that's about right. And so let's just go ahead and just jump right into this. Um, how did you first come to faith in Christ? How did you first become Christians? What what were, what were both of your journeys? Okay, well, I'll start. Um, I was born and raised in East Africa. My parents were missionaries, so I was always exposed to the gospel. Um, You know, uh, believed in Jesus, was a typical, quote, Christian kid. Uh, Came back to the States when I was 17, going on almost 18 to go to college. And uh, had in mind what I wanted to do with my life and... uh, seemed like the Lord had some other plans, and really there became a real crisis of faith while I was a, a student at college, and uh, it was at that point that I really surrendered my life and my will to Christ. I uh, 
I would say I'd been saved before that, but that was really a major directional, pivotal turning point in my life. Uh, so from that point, everything changed, and it's been, <laughs> been great serving the Lord. It's interesting. It's interesting you mentioned that because I just did an interview not long ago with a guy named Sean English, and he mentioned a very similar thing where he had given his life to God, but then there was just kind of a a moment where he really surrendered everything to God. What, like, how would you describe that? Well, I would describe it simply this way: uh, <laughs> I believed in God, but I wanted to do life my way, and uh, I finally came to the conclusion that God. If I was going to have a relationship with God that was going to go anywhere, I had to do life God's way. And uh, when I surrendered that, you know, I guess I would say I was thinking that that was going to be hardship. That was going to be, you know, I'm giving up everything, you know. But in reality, I gained everything. You know what? I, it just it was a real pivotal moment. So it was more around surrender of my will, I would say. And then, Sandy, was that a similar story for you as well, or was it very different? Well, for me, I was raised in a Christian home. My father was a pastor, so I, you know, kind of grew up in Indiana, and, and my dad was pastoring there, and I, I always knew about God, and my dad and mother were faithful to to read the Word of God and, and teach us the Word of God, but I really didn't come to know the Lord until I was about 12, which is very young, but I began to realize that it wasn't a relationship uh, my relationship with God wasn't going to help me j because my parents were Christians. I became aware that I needed to have a personal relationship with God. And at 12, uh, you know, being the oldest girl of nine children, I think I was a uh, pretty mature and I realized that I needed that personal relationship. And so I surrendered my life and heart to, to God at 12. And, uh, and of course I've learned a lot and grown a lot since then, but so, so nine kids, and you know, it's funny when you talk to people now. Like five kids is <laughs> is like a big family, and we came from a family of six. Um, how, like, how was that growing up in a family of nine? How was that? How did that impact your spiritual walk at all, if, if any? Actually, I, I'm very fortunate to have been born to into a family where mom and mom and dad, you know, uh, prayer and Bible reading was a was a daily thing. And of course, with nine kids, it, we always were having a blast. It was a lot of fun. There was a lot of love, but there was discipline. And and I think uh, f for me spiritually, uh, mom and dad made it very practical. Um, they they taught us if there was fights or spats between the kids, they they taught us from the word of God very casually, but very practically why we shouldn't do that or, or why we shouldn't steal or why we shouldn't whatever. And so it was uh, kind of a daily growing up, you know, and I was, like I said, very blessed and very fortunate to have parents who kind of integrated the Word of God into our lives on a daily basis. And so then what took both of you to Ukraine? Like that, you know, you talked, Melvin, you talked about earlier about, you know, thinking that God would ask you to give everything up. And then <laughs> now going, I know that you were a missionary kid yourself, though, but going to Ukraine, moving to a completely different country, was that um, a little bit overwhelming or, or how did you just look at that as, okay, this is the natural next step in God's calling? Well, that was a, that's a great question. I, let me just give you quickly a little background there. So uh, when Sandy and I were dating, uh, she knew I was from missionary background, and uh, she 
kind of made it real clear to me that God would never call her to be a missionary. And <laughs> and if we were going to be serious about a relationship, that needed to be understood. And at that point, I had no real direction in that way. And, you know, so I just, oh, you know, I'm, I don't feel that direction in my life at this point, so it's fine. You know, we moved on, got married, uh, got involved in education, and uh, after 10 years of uh, teaching, then, you know, God began to challenge my heart with some things. And I remember particularly one uh, time, it was after, it was at, when was that, in the end of 91, maybe 92, early 92, end of 91 maybe. And uh, the Soviet Union was falling apart. And we were actually, I was the head of the music department at a college in Florida at that time. And with that college, uh, they had a chapel and a church and stuff, and uh, a mission leader had come and was sharing how God was opening doors and literature and other things were going into that part of the world and the great hunger for the gospel. Well, growing up in East Africa, I'd lived there during Soviet occupation, basically, when the military coups and all that. And, and so to me, that was very moving because, you know, I had lost a lot of friends, literally killed in war over the trauma that, you know, in my mind, the Russians brought. And, uh, you know, and I was kind of gloating there in my self-righteousness that it's great that the Soviet Union's coming down. They deserve it. It's an evil empire and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, it was suddenly the Spirit of God pressed on me that, wait a second, those were just, you know, young men who were there as soldiers. They were fearful for their lives. They had moms and sweethearts back home. They were just trying to survive and get home. And, uh, you know, and then it, you know, the real impression came that the reality was that most of those people never had exposure to the gospel. And now God is doing something wonderful and the doors are opening. And so God began to stir in my heart. Um, and we had just had our fifth child and, uh, you know, and I was praying, well, Lord, I don't know if this is you or whatever, but if this is you, you're going to have to talk to my wife uh, because, you know, I don't think she's going to be interested at all in, in doing that. And Sandy, pick up right there. Yeah, like, I'll just uh, follow up the question here right, for you, Sandy, is, is like, yeah, talk about that because it seems to me a lot of times, obviously, my wife and I were expecting our first kid on the way, so we don't know from personal experience. But when... Uh, when couples have a family, then the idea of engaging in full-time ministry, especially going overseas, that seems out of the question. So what what were you thinking? Well, as Melvin has already mentioned, you know, I did say to him that I, I was, would never be interested in going over, leaving my own country. And for the first 10 years of our marriage, a couple times it had come up, like we'd be in a missionary service or something, and he would show some enthusiasm or excitement about maybe going back into the mission field. And I would always remind him of what I had said, even though I wanted those people to know about God. But what Melvin didn't share just now is that nine months before this service that we had attended, where uh, they had gone to the Soviet Union and come back and was presenting this, this uh, service to us, I was having my devotions one morning, and uh, I felt like I, I just heard a voice say to me, you know, Sandy, are you going to serve me? Are you going to serve yourself? And immediately, 
I looked around to see if there was someone there because it seemed so audible. But I knew that it was God and that he was being very pointed with me. I didn't have to ask him what he meant. I knew he was asking me if I would be willing to do whatever he asked, even if it meant missions. And so for the next nine months, I never mentioned that to Melvin. But I, I kind of argued with God because of my children. I had, I had five. Well, actually, I was expecting my fifth one at that time. And by the time nine months had rolled around, I was so miserable. And I felt I had lost that joy of the Lord out of my heart. And I was just desperate to have that joy back. And so in this service that Melvin mentioned, and he went to the altar, I was standing in the back of the church with our five-week-old baby. And I told the Lord at that time, I don't know what you're asking me to do. I don't know uh, if it's you want us to go to Ukraine or you want us to go to Russia or what you want us to do, but I want the joy of the Lord to return to my heart. And if that means... Uh, being willing to do this, I'm willing. And that at that moment is when I realized it didn't matter. God was going to take care of my kids. God was going to take care of all of our needs. But what he wanted me to do was surrender to his will. And I can tell you right from that moment on, I felt that joy flood my heart and, and flood my life. And that burden of fighting against God was gone. And I, I began to get excited about what God, now we didn't have any clue that God, where God was sending us, but I knew that whatever it was, I was willing. And that's how I felt. And, and the interesting thing for me was that I prayed that that night. I had no idea that she, what was going on in her mind or in her heart. We got home that night, put the kids to bed, went to bed ourselves, laying there in bed, and I couldn't go to sleep, and she couldn't go to sleep. And finally she said, Honey, I just got to tell you, you know, God's been talking to me, and if God is telling you to, that there's something we need to be doing, I just want you to know I'm willing to follow and do whatever the Lord wills. And you talk about a quick answer to prayer. To me, that was like, Wow. You know, and of course, I mean, we still didn't know, had no clue what God, where God was going to lead us, or if He was leading us at all. Um, I, when that night, I had no idea how quickly God was going to answer prayer because I had no idea what God was doing in Sandy's life. We got home that night, put the kids to bed, went to bed ourselves. I couldn't sleep. I didn't realize Sandy wasn't sleeping. And then she began to talk to me and told me, said, listen, I don't know what God's doing, but I know that God's been talking to me, and I want you to know that <clears throat> whatever God wants us to do, I'm with you, and I'll support you in whatever God is calling. You talk about a quick answer to prayer. I mean, a couple hours before that, I was telling God, look, if this is you, you're going to have to talk to Sandy. I had no idea. God had already been talking to her for months, and this was just this crisis point of, of uh, you know, bringing us together there. Now, we still had no idea if we were going to make a change, you know, or anything. It was just about, again, it was about our willingness, our availability. And, uh, you know, so we be began to pray we asked both of our parents to join us in prayer, and within a few days, we were contacted by a mission leader who literally came and said, I want to come visit you in your home. He did, and then he said, listen, I feel like God's been speaking to me, and I, God is challenging us to open a ministry 
somewhere in the Soviet Union, and what felt like God is calling you to be our point person in that. And, you know, there it just, you know, God was putting all the pieces together all around us. All we had to do was just walk in obedience. It was, it was quite a journey. You know, that's, that's really interesting. And from speaking from like a couple's perspective, it seems like a number of times when I talk to people and they feel like they're going to step out, especially as a couple and do something bold for God, that God doesn't always speak to them both at the same point. Maybe he speaks to one of them first or one of them is more, you know, hears the voice first. What would you say to that couple that maybe the the husband's heard first or the wife's heard first, but the other one hasn't heard that? (laughs) What, What do they do in that case? I think the important thing is just to be available and be willing because you can only answer for yourself and uh, just lift that thing before the Lord in God's timing. If it's really God, I believe God will bring the other person around unless they just have a stubborn heart and refuse to obey. In that case, um, God's got a plan B. So then when, when when you moved, talk about that. What did that look like, especially with five kids? Like when you hit the ground the first day, um, Sandy, I interviewed uh, someone you might be familiar with, uh, Tim and Becky Keep. Uh, just that you know, and for those listening, that's uh, uh, Becky is is Sandy's sister. But you know, she talks about this that when they first went to the Philippines and then she was there, it was in a way it was terrifying at first because it was so different from everything that she had known. What was your response when you first? landed and and got into day-to-day task when we first landed I think the scariest thing was that it seemed like on every single corner and at everywhere you turn there was a soldier or somebody with an AK-47 or some kind of a you know high-powered weapon and for me that was terrifying Um, and we we literally landed in a third world country I mean uh, all of the suitcases, you know, we're used to in America to the conveyor belts, bringing them all in. They came in on like what looked like a farm wagon and they were just piled high like a mountain and you had to just pick through them and find all your suitcases. So it was just a whole different world. Um, and also the shopping was so different for us. I mean, you, you shop at an open market, the meat was laid out on slabs, you know, for me, uh, it, it was just, um, and, and they're all speaking a different language, and you had to learn. Yeah, and Becky mentioned that same thing too about the meat. I remember that. So, so what like what was that experience like? Um, well, in the winter it wasn't so bad because you didn't have the flies. Now Becky in the Philippines <laughs> would not have had that, but, <laughs> but but in the summer it just just all the flies and all the it just the uns the lack of sanitation, I think, and me being a nurse, it also really bothered me. I was the hygiene and the lack of cleanliness, <coughs> but uh, I think was the biggest thing for me. I kind of enjoyed bantering back and forth with the people after I uh, grasped the language a little better, but, you know, just the, um, the lack of sanitation probably. Well, from a domestic standpoint, when we first went there, I mean, it was just, I mean, the Soviet Union was just falling apart, and it was very, very much still post-Soviet, you know, mindset. And uh, 
everything was run by the state. Everything was run through local Soviets or councils. I mean, that's where you got all your ration cards for flour, for oil, for sugar, for any staples. And we didn't have a ration card, so we couldn't get it unless we somehow right. found it on the black market. Right. And so, I mean, even fuel for a vehicle. I mean, everything was uh, government divvied out, okay? And uh, so there were some real challenges uh, and there were additional challenges uh, from a legal perspective that we weren't anticipating soon after we got over there. But, you know, God worked all those details out, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was a journey of faith for sure. When you first got there, was there an organization that you were working with, like a Christian organization um, that was already established there, or were you basically going in cold? and establishing it from nothing? Well, we pretty much were going in, establishing from nothing. Certainly there were Christian organizations, the local, you know, underground churches and registered churches and so forth. Um, <clears throat> however, uh, again, because of the post-Soviet era, uh, the underground churches were very careful to not associate, you know, because, you know, they didn't, trust. They didn't nobody trusted anybody. Uh, and the, the state churches tended to be full of spies and whatever. And there's no question we had spies. We had all kind of people followed us all the time for everything. However, it was also a time of new things because the new government, new breakup, you know, everything was new. And so, and there were some new freedoms that we were able to take advantage of and so pretty much the work that we started doing was a follow-up of you know of evangelism and tent meetings and all that kind of stuff and then eventually the goal was to start a bible college which we did and uh, so all of that work you know those people were raw brand new totally unchurched or if churched at all were basically in the orthodox tradition uh you know, some mostly with very little gospel because mm -hmm. of just the whole Soviet setup, you know. But uh, did you find people what people were open in general, or were they pretty closed when you spoke to them? I think that uh, they they were very cautious. First, when we first went there, we found that they were very cautious. Those who had come to tent meetings and evangelistic meetings before we arrived. Were people who were very hungry and maybe even curious. Curiosity, they were very curious. But um, I remember the first week we were there, we were on a bus, and there was a what they call, you know, a grandma, an older lady, uh, who literally I had uh, our youngest child, who was a year old, in a in a stroller, and we all got on the bus, and she knew we were foreign because she heard us speaking English, and she kicked the bottom of the stroller and said something in Russian, which I did not understand. And our interpreters had to said that she told us, you capitalists go home. So that was, you had wow. an element of that kind of response and reception or lack of receiving us. And then you had others who were very curious, who wanted to get to know us and, mm. and know more about, you know, what we were there for. And so then, then what was the early days then? What did that look like? How did you spend your time in connecting with people? What what was the day to day grind of things? What did that look like? <laughs> it sounds really. I think it's going to be really glamorous. Different between the two of us. Okay, so I spent most of my time 
um, in government offices and working on getting permits and getting legal status and, you know, because of everything, uh, you know, figuring out what the laws were, what we could do, couldn't do, starting, you know, registering mis ministry organizations and all that kind of stuff. Uh, <clears throat> Sandy, we had five kids. Uh, she was homeschooling. She was trying to make do uh, in very difficult, you know, cramped quarters, uh, washing clothes in a bathtub, uh, you Sometimes know. Sometimes with water, and then a lot of times we didn't have water. You know, and, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, it was very different. So she was trying to survive just the basics of keeping the family going and meals and, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um uh, mine was more out in the in the world trying to get a ministry established. Hers was trying to keep the home going. So is that would uh, anything you want to add to yes. that? I think that's accurate. Yes. <laughs> and so let's kind of set this up then. The night that that we t talked about here that Melvin was attacked, or and then and then your whole family, uh, you were robbed. Set that up um, for our listeners, and how did that all come about? Okay, I guess I'll start with that. Um, actually, we had uh, we were living in an apartment, a nine-star nine-story apartment building, and Melvin was back in the office studying for his message for the next day. I had put all of our by that time we had six children because when we originally went, I had was expecting our sixth one, and so we had a one-year-old. Uh, you know, our sixth child was one. And I was preparing for a meal the next day. We were having a lot of the missionaries over uh, who were fellow missionaries for uh, Sunday lunch and some Ukrainian people. And um, I was just in the kitchen, and, we, and there we had a window open, and we were on the first floor, and we were trusting Americans, so we didn't have bars on our windows. And so I just went back to ch I had just got my first washer, and I was so excited. I went back to check on a load of laundry and that I was getting ready to hang up, and I heard the latch in the kitchen on the window. And I thought, Melvin, why is he shutting the window? And uh, so I turned around to call to him and say, don't shut the window. It's too hot. I'm baking in there. And I was looking in at a gun that was right in my face. And there were five men coming into the house in a single file. They were all dressed in black with masks on and black gloves. And they were, it was a gang. And they came at me, and I ran into our master bedroom where the baby was sleeping, try, automatically trying to get away. But Melvin says I yelled, and then he came. Three of them heard him, and they began to beat him. And, um, and I had two on me. One was choking me with a gun to my head, and I must have been crying out because I remember I spoke the language fairly well at that point, and he told me to be quiet or he was going to shoot the baby because the baby had just woken up and... So anyway, I just heard them beating my husband or a fight going on, and then I heard a loud thud. The <coughs> children's bunk bed had hit the floor, and I just said to them, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to leave me alone. I wanted to get a, into Melvin to check on Melvin. And the guy just fell back from me, and I ran into the other room. Uh, they followed me, and there I found Melvin already unconscious, and two men were holding on to him, and... Uh, were beating him while he was unconscious with a crowbar, and um, so even I, after even after he was unconscious, they were still they continued to beat him. They wow. told me they would beat him until I gave them money. Wow! And uh, just as a side note, a, a month before we had had another missionary who'd been robbed. They weren't at home, 
but Melvin had hidden the money so I wouldn't know where it was. So oh, I began to wow. just say, oh, Lord, where's the money? I don't know where the money is. And the Lord miraculously directed me to the little toilet room that had a big pipe running behind it with a, in a cabinet. And it, I remembered Melvin standing on the toilet. And I thought, why would he stand on the toilet? And it must have been the Lord bringing it to me. He had taped an envelope of about $9,000 of the mission money to that pipe. And I found that envelope and gave it to them. And after about five minutes of beating him, or maybe seven, um, they said, it's all here, and they left. And just pause for a second there. Why did you have so much cash on you during that, that time? Because uh, the banks were in a free fall. The currency was in a free fall. If you put money in the bank today, it was gone tomorrow. So you had everything. We kept everything in U.S. dollars, kept it in cash, and, you know, changed money as needed. That's mm -hmm. the only way uh, you could keep anything there. Mm -hmm. And then somehow they got wind of that or they probably maybe they well, speculated or just, what, what was that yeah i had just come back from germany i'd gone over there to do some business uh we we had several missionaries there at the time and the ministry had grown significantly and so we were buying some used vehicles over there uh for the ministry and so forth so i had just come back and actually <clears throat> i didn't bring money in with me we'd taken money and spent it and brought a car back for one of the missionaries to use but you know somehow they thought I'd just got out of the country I'd come back I'd brought money and I'm sure that had to been because it was timed right with it was like the next day that this happened uh, so I we're assuming that that was the issue Sandy then what what were you thinking in particular when Melvin was laying there like um, what was going on in your mind well initially I thought he was dead because the the amount of blood uh, was was uh, it was just all over the place and he was lying there not moving but I did see his leg move and so I jumped in to nurse mode and I knew I had to go stop his bleeding so I, I was thinking okay at first I just got to get Melvin stabilized unfortunately I had given my last IV away that I knew his blood pressure was dropping I knew he was going into shock and uh, so I called um, a Ukrainian man uh, and told him what had happened, and he brought people to help me with the children because they were all crying. But I was able to stabilize Melvin at that point uh, with one thing, and that was his body temperature. I wrapped him in a goose-down blanket. I stopped his bleeding, wrapped him in a goose-down blanket, and took a hairdryer and heated his body to a safe temperature. And that stopped the shock process. But what I was thinking in regards to why I had God allowed this to happen was really what was going through my mind. And matter of fact, I said, Lord, I told you I would do this, and I, you said you would take care of us. But I'll tell you the thing that really changed me that night was that when Melvin, I finally got him stabilized, our son, oldest son was 11 years old, and he went to his dresser and picked up his Bible. And, and of course, the kids were frantic, and they were crying, and I was frantic. There were seven detectives by this time. There were policemen everywhere. But Melvin went to his dad, who was still unconscious, and he lay, stayed that way for three hours. He went to him, he said, Daddy, I know you can't hear me, but I'm going to read the Bible. And he began to read the 23rd Psalm. And I remember standing there wanting to give up. And one time, while I, right before this, when I was kneeling by Melvin, and, I, and he, he it seemed to come to, and I said, I'm going to get us out of here. Monday, we're going home. But as Melvin began, Melvin Jr. began to read that 23rd Psalm, he got to the fourth verse that said, 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And it was almost like God's voice spoke through the, the voice of my child, and he said, I haven't forgotten you. I'm here, and it was the, the, I could feel the warmth of God's arms around me. And I got angry at the devil at that point, and I just said, oh, no, you don't. God worked on me for nine months. I committed to, and surrendered to the Lord. He brought me here, and he said he's going, to get, he's going to keep me. And I said, we're staying here, and we're going to finish the job that God brought us to do. And that was just amazing feeling that God reached down and spoke to me and literally touched me with his arms that night and, and assured me that he had not left me. And uh, it, it was just, uh, it was a crazy night, but it was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life to be able to be in contact with God on that level. That's, and then Melvin, you came to th three hours later, you say? Yeah, three hours later. Now, here's the irony of that. Uh, when Sandy called Volodya, who was one of our main leaders over there, he immediately called the ambulance, which was two blocks away. There, the ambl ambulance center was two blocks away from our place. It took them almost, well, it was over three hours before they got to our place. Supposedly they were out of gas, blah, 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 blah. Of course, that was right, you know, that was old Soviet style. And so... Uh, it was quite quite the thing, but yeah, I was. So why why any reason they took so long? Like what was well, the, they, just you know got to rouse somebody out yeah. of bed and yeah. you know <laughs> oh we don't have any gas in the van and by the way the van it was just an old rickety van uh, it had like an army cot in the back and, and literally when they got there they Sandy had warmed me all up and I'd just come to and of course I was cut and lacerated and aching from head to toe and uh, still you know most of the bleeding had stopped but still bleeding some and th they immediately ripped all my clothes off and you know started pushing here pushing there does this hurt does that hurt you know and uh, and uh, then they uh, hauled me up they said well we got to take you to the trauma hospital and so they uh, said well get up and walk out to the ambulance and so <laughs> Uh, hobbled out there and literally they slid the side door open and I had to climb over a bag of potatoes a big gun sack <laughs> of potatoes to get to the wow. arm got and it was quite a night and quite an adventure and I, we don't have time for that whole story here now but uh, it was quite an adventure like what what were you thinking when you came to did you have thoughts of leaving you know I really didn't um I think I knew God had called us there. Obviously, I didn't know how badly I was hurt. I knew that, you know, God had protected us. And, and let me say this. I think this would probably be an appropriate time to bring this in. Uh, we were pastoring a church that had been planted there, and this time was running... Around 500. Yeah, several hundred people. And, uh, you know, it was a very difficult time there in the country. And the people were, I mean, um, unemployment was through the roof. Crime activity, violence, it was terrible. Everybody was just trying to survive. And, uh, you know, people were... Uh, 
you know, trying to get a little money, trying to do this. They'd borrow money and then, you know, they were more or less kids would be kept, you know, taken as hostages. You know, people get their, you know, if you don't pay us back by such and such time, we're going to cut your hand off. And, you know, this kind of just violent crime kind of stuff. And I mean, the people in our church, this was an everyday reality for them. And so, when I, you know proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming hope to these people i mean i would do my best with the lord's help to give them hope but i could see in their eyes as they watched and as they listened so many of them it was like that sounds really great but if something bad happens to you you're out of here there's you know you can leave anytime you want we're stuck here i mean we had people contacting us all the time asking for you know, emergency help for this, that, and something else, I knew I couldn't help them because it would be like, you know, you could never get to the bottom of that because it, there was a long, long, long line. And, you know, and I just say, you know, hey, we're going to have to trust God with this. You know, trust the Lord. He's going to help you. And this was an opportunity and a time when I realized this was a time for us to trust the Lord and instead of running, to stick it out. And as God helped us to do that, it was amazing to see what began to happen in the church because all of a sudden the trust level in the church just went through the roof and people began to see, you know, these aren't just empty words. The gospel is real and it works no matter who you are, where you are, what your circumstance is. God is our hope and strength. He is our supply. He's everything. And we just have to stay focused on him. And I think that's that, in my mind, is the one reason why God allowed that to happen to us. Wow. Any specific story you want to share uh, along with that maybe a, a person or two that like um that was really impacted by the ministry well uh there I know that there could was, go on for quite a while yeah, yeah good well i think one of the things that uh a lot of the uh women and even men in the church this happened on a saturday night and on sunday uh, we of course didn't go to church the next morning but they came to our home and said so when will you be leaving when will you be leaving Oh, so they automatically assumed you would Oh, they stay. automatically assumed we would leave. And, I mean, I could name you probably a hundred people who asked me that question. And I said, oh, but we're not leaving. Oh, oh, but you're not leaving? After they did this to you, you're not leaving? We said, no. We said, God, ask us to come here and share the gospel with you, people who hadn't had a Bible for over 74 years and or weren't allowed to have a Bible, you know, and so I think it's just that's when we saw the change and they said they, they, they believed and they knew it was real, that, that we were there not for fame or fortune. We were there to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and we were loving them and we were giving to them what God had given to us. And it, it was a changing point and a turning point in our ministry. You know, talk about that for a minute because I was interviewing someone and they talked about um, they were doing inner city ministry. And and they would always, you know, use the phrase, and, I, and I've used this on, uh, a couple times with moving up here, well, we're called to be here. This mm -hmm. is, you know, where God wants us to be. Mm -hmm. And this person shares that they were sharing this in front of one of the members of their congregation with someone else that, you know, well, why are you ministering in the, the inner city? Well, we're called to be here. 
And the person just stopped them and said, well, I thought you were here just because you liked us. And, and that, in that moment, that really changed something in, in their mind. And so talk about that, that maybe someone, uh, maybe they're a missionary or maybe they're um, doing their best to reach out to their neighbors in an ungodly area. And they've kind of been stuck in calling mode where, well, God's just called us to be here and to grind it out, but to really be around the people, to embrace them as our friends and family. Like, yeah. how do we do that? Well, I, let, let me put that in perspective if I can. I think our calling is a calling to serve. Anytime God calls us, it's a call to serve. And service is all about love, care, compassion, not what's in my best interest, but what's in somebody else's best interest. And so if God is calling, yeah, I'm here because I love you. That's it, buddy. You got it exactly right. And I love you, and I love God and God loves you so much, he asked me to come here and join with him in expressing his love. And what higher calling? What higher calling? And sometimes you have to wait a while for the fruit. You know, sometimes we have to go through difficulties to be believable. I mean, but you look at Jesus. Look at what he suffered and sacrificed to get our attention I mean, he gave his life, and some people still don't believe, you know. But, I mean, it's just the way it is. But I really believe that in in ministry and in in being called, being called is not for glamour, for any of that. It has nothing to do with position. It has everything to do with mission. And the real mission is to show the love of Christ, however he opens that door. It's different for everybody. How do you battle through resistance? Um, Because I think sometimes, uh, I think I've definitely been guilty of this, is I can associate resistance with maybe a sign of God's disapproval. So maybe in in your case, you know, when Melvin's getting beat up, um, there, you know, someone could look on and and say, well, okay, this is a sure sign that you should be somewhere else. You should be playing it safer. So how do you know, but on, you know, but on the same hand, there are people that have been in ministry where they've just stuck it when, (laughs) stuck through it when, you know, probably God is calling them to somewhere else, but they've just continued to, to kind of um, (laughs) maybe be bullheaded and just continue on. So what's, what's the tension there? How, how do you balance that with, really being in tune with the Spirit and staying through resistance and persevering, but also being sensitive to the Holy Spirit and allowing Him to speak if it is time to go? I know it's a, kind of a loaded question there. Right. Well, uh, first of all, I think that uh, the, my initial response on the night of when this particular thing happened was when the devil kept coming to me and just said, and it was that feeling like God was punishing us. And that we must have done something wrong because he was allowing this to happen. And I believe usually when that happens, that is definitely the devil. That is Satan speaking his lies into your mind. And so 
I, and and you ask about when do you know whether you're being bullheaded or whether you're being uh, uh, what was the other word spirit led. And uh, I think one example, and and I will just mention this briefly because I've heard it so many times. Melvin's family, when they were in Ethiopia, and and the resistance came in, and there was all kinds of war taking place. Melvin's father felt like they should stay, and the American embassy had had recommended they go, and he felt they had prayer, and they he felt very sure that he should keep his wife and his five children in a war zone. And there were many nights when they had to lay flat on their bellies in the hallway, and there were bullets that dinged around the rooms. Now, they were there. I, I can't remember exactly how long it was after that. But then later on, there was another convoy going, and he felt very clearly that he should leave. He knew it was time not to be bullheaded. But they, there was more to be done in those two years that they stayed, or two, you know, two or two and a half years they stayed. So I think you just have to be very sensitive to the spirit and and in tune, you know, not doing this because, I, I, you know, trying to be tough guy. You've got to be, like you said, spirit-led. And I think so much of it has to do with what is God doing and what is your role, whatever that role may be as a leader or as a follower, as a prayer warrior, as a uh, whatever, in building God's church mm -hmm. as an investor, whatever. I mean, the roles can vary widely. But what is God doing and what is your role? And knowing that is important. I think, you know, the, the bottom line boils down to, I think you really kind of summed it up in the question, are we in tune with God to where we are being spirit-led, because if we're spirit-led, we're flexible. Mm -hmm. Whether it means to adjust our methods, our modes, our, our mission slightly, how can we accomplish greater good for the kingdom of God, for mankind in general? Um, is this about me? Or is this about the mission? And I think bullheaded usually starts to happen when it's about me. Mm -hmm. That's well said. Talk, um, maybe just talk very briefly, kind of coming to a close here, but talk about the importance of calling. Because this is a word that I heard a lot growing up, but more and more as I get out in, in church circles, I don't hear this word as much. And I think maybe one of the reasons is because people have been spooked by it a little bit. That the whole idea of being called by God, well, is that you know, is that really a thing? And but I, there, I think there is something very powerful with being called that it it keeps you strong in in difficult times. And so, you know, talk about that, the importance of that. It, is that necessary for someone, or or is that I don't I don't know. Well, it's a good question, and it's a very relevant one. Um. Part, part of that comes from various traditions. Uh, you know, in the broader church, evangelical church today, you know, there's a lot of focus on, you know, everybody's called, and I totally agree with that. Right. Every right. believer in Jesus is called to be a priest and king um, and a servant 
and we are called to serve. We are called to be uh, ambassadors for Christ. You know, uh, I mean, that's that's what it's all about. It's not anything else. And so, in that in that sense, that's a general calling. But all through Scripture, we see times where God specifically lays His hand or His He. Well, I use that in a general sense, uh, or he speaks into somebody's life, but he, he handpicks people for a task, for an assignment. I mean, that doesn't just happen to all the masses, you know, but, but he picks his person for this assignment. And it could be as little as the, you know, the calling when I'm in the grocery store and the Spirit says, see that person right there? I want you to talk to them and show them some kindness. Is that a calling? In a sense, it is. It's a spirit-led directive to accomplish a mission. Now, that is a very small case in point, but in the larger sense, there are those that God calls into maybe, you know, as we call this full-time Christian ministry, as pastors, as, you know, missionaries, things of that nature, um, you know, where we kind of set ourselves apart so to speak, for a, a bigger, specific mission that we know in our hearts and that has been affirmed to us through others and through the body of Christ in general uh, to accomplish. And I think that is very important, particularly uh, if you're going to go launch a, a new ministry. You know, if you're just a fly high flying free roller and you know I'm just gonna go do all this stuff on my own you know some of that could be God some of it could be ambition mm -hmm. you know uh, but I do believe that you know God still calls people specifically and I would say this if you don't have that it's v it would be very difficult to make it through the difficult, challenging times mm -hmm. that those ministries bring you. Because I really do believe in every ministry launch or whatever major work that God is doing, He there are going to be those difficult challenges. And if you don't know that God has put mm -hmm. you there, um, it'd be very hard to stay. Talk to the person that is going through a difficult season of their life right now. And maybe they're at the place where they've started something and they've got several months, maybe even a year, two years, three, four years into, into it. And they've kind of, um, you know, they've always been taught where God guides, he provides. And right now they're feeling that that provision isn't there, that they're feeling nervous about whether it's a building project they're taking on or maybe they've moved to a new area with their family and they're worried about their kids, where they're going to go to school, all this, all these things, and they're starting to question God, and they're really having a difficult time persevering, uh, even though they feel that God's called them to this place and directed their paths to this place. What do you say to a person like that? Well, I will say, I'm just going to give you one little short story to, to give you an idea of how God has provided for us. He's done this on multiple occasions. But there was a time when, um, uh, actually when my, uh, my sister Becky and her husband were living in our home in Michigan. And we were in a transition period from Ukraine going to our next, our next place of, of work. 
and, and they were staying there in our home and, and they were paying us, uh, you know, 400 if they have it a month. And if they didn't have it, then we said, God is going to provide. And I remember when uh, Jesse was getting their, their blind son, they have a blind son, was going through five weeks of radiation treatment. And Melvin and I, that same morning uh, that we had this conversation, Melvin and I sat down. We had $100 in our account. We didn't know how the Lord was going to provide. And uh, Tim called us. We had just had prayer, and he called us and said, Sandy, your furnace in this house just went out. So, of course, we're thinking, okay, God, we just told you about our needs. And, and now this? Now this? He says, we have to have it turned on because Jesse's going to be back after radiation. You know, and, and, and it was dead of winter in Michigan. And so anyway, I just said, you know what, Tim, you go on. And he was going to be at the hospital that day. I said, we're going to pray about it. We know that God's going to provide. And they hadn't paid us for two months of rent. And what I was said, the amount? That, the amount that, was 400 a month that they were paying No, us. that they were the repair. The repair. A, uh, he said like, he had already gotten an, uh, an estimate and it was going to be $2,500 to get it fixed. So I went down to the post office literally five minutes after this phone call. There was one envelope in my, in my post office box, and it was from Indiana, a certain church in Indiana. Actually, it didn't even say it was a church. But I opened it up, and there was no letter, nothing, no explanation. It was just a check for $2,556. Wow. And I'm like, I began to thank the Lord right there in the post office. And I ran home, and on my way home, the van, the only vehicle we had, broke down. And I, I just kind of went in the driveway. I went in and I said, Melvin, you and I, I was just so thrilled about what God had done. I, get, I gave him the check and I said, I don't even know what this is about, but call the church and find out. They had been saving that money up for our family for months. And the pastor, a new pastor came and said, who's this for? And he said, the Adams family. They said, send it. They probably need it. This was God providing, even when we didn't know we needed it. The interesting thing was our van broke down and we had an estimate. It was going to be $800. At the end of the day, after Jesse's treatments that day at the hospital, Tim called me. And before I could even tell him the answer to prayer that God had given me, he said, Sandy, I just want to thank the Lord. We checked our mail on our way out today and the Lord sent us $800 from some people who just felt like they needed to send it to us. And we're going to send it to you for our rent. It was $800 what was the van was going to cost. And so, you know, it's de- the devil wanted me to be discouraged. As soon as I got that $2,500, the computer chip went on our van. But the Lord, he does know and he does hear. And it doesn't always happen in that way. But God provides. And, and the thing is, uh, it's important to never doubt God's promises. Sometimes you'd get down to the wire and you think there is no way God's coming through because in 15 minutes, I have to have that money or I have to, I need this or I need that or we have no food. God knows that. And I think what I've had to remind myself of, and I have to remind myself of even today, because God wants us to remember the things that he has done because there comes times when we have to remember those to go on to the next step of faith. Because God does care, he knows, and he's going to come through every time as long as our faith is in Him and, and we're following his, his way. And I think if there's anything I could add just in summing it up, we get our eyes on the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Boy, they get really tough. And we can lose heart. But if we keep our eyes on 
Jesus, um, he carries us through. Mm-hmm. We keep our eyes on him. Mm-hmm. We keep our eyes on the mission he gives us. Mm-hmm. Then we can trust. We can pray in confidence. And, and God is not slack concerning his promises. God always makes mm-hmm. a way. If he's in it, we've heard it over and over, right? If he's in it, he'll provide. And look, we've been at this for 30 plus years, almost 35 years. And, and every day when we pray together and we, God has never once failed us. There have been many times when we wondered where in the world did God go? But when it came to crunch time, God has always been faithful. Mm -hmm. And so whatever you're going through, whoever may be listening to this, whatever your circumstances, I just want to encourage you, keep your heart and your mind focused on God. Dig into his word. Remember the things he's done for you already. And let your hope be in the Lord. Mm -hmm. Don't get discouraged because God is not through with you, and God is building his kingdom. He is building his church through you. Take heart, be steady, and God is going to see you through. I I was going to ask maybe one or two more questions, but I think that's a good place to end. And Melvin and Sandy, thank you so much for coming on. I joke with people that come on that one of the reasons I do this podcast is just selfishly, um, I, I love to hear what people share, and this has really been encouraging and, and inspiring to me as well. So thank you for sharing this. Thank you, Ezra. Thank the Lord. God bless you in the work you're doing up there, Ezra. That was some great stuff, wasn't it? I was just talking to Janan when I was editing this and putting the pieces of this audio all together. We were listening, and re- well, I was re-listening to it, and she was listening to this uh, episode for the first time, and uh, we were just sharing with one another how just what an encouraging testimony that is, and a really challenging and, and convicting message. One of the things I think that stood out for me the most was that it took Melvin and Sandy going through some adversity for the people that were um, underneath them as a part of the church to really see that they were serious. And uh, I just thought, wow, maybe that's in, in our lives sometimes that God allows us to go through some difficult things so that others around us can see the difficulty that we're going through and uh, are we're given a fresh witness, a fresh voice into their lives that maybe we wouldn't have had uh, without the difficulty. But anyways, um, just for the, the record, if you haven't already, check out our new website, themondaychristian.com. Uh, we have a bunch of other podcast ep- episodes, uh, blogs on there, and some other helpful resources that you can check out. But until next time, my name's Ezra Beyer. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program that helps you put into action the truth of God's Word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. For more info on this program, simply visit our website, themondaychristian.com. That's themondaychristian.com.